You're listening to Monocle on Sunday, first broadcast on the 30th of May 2021 on Monocle 24. Good morning from Zurich. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday. I'm Tyler Brille. Coming up, my studio guests today, Rob Cox, Gillian Tobias and Marcus Schugel. They've all been looking at the Sunday papers. Rob is here. Rob, good morning. What's going on? Uh, two things. Good news is that we have 80,000 people a day are getting a shot here in Switzerland. You now had a sort of a, a real rapid rebound in the vaccination pace. That's great. I think it's something like 20% of the people here are now fully vaccinated, having had a really slow start. I mean, quite a surprisingly so start. That's the good news. The bad news, I look back to across the Atlantic at my home country and I see record sales of firearms and background checks. And uh, while America's always had this gun problem, it seems to be exacerbated now by the uh, by all of the social strains of the pandemic, uh, civil rights, things like that. A little bit worrying to think that that uh, the enemy is now perceived as your fellow human being, your fellow citizen in America in ways that it hadn't been the case before. Indeed. You'll also have some tales from Italy as well. Also, our correspondent in Bangkok, Gwen Robinson, will bring us the latest from her part of the world. I'll be speaking today about the vaccine politics in Thailand, royal involvement, and also the Myanmar coup fallout and how it's hitting the region. More from Gwen a bit later. We'll also be heading to Athens to find out what's in the pages of the Katamarini newspaper today. It's the 30th of May 2021, live from Zurich. This is Monocle on Sunday. Live from Zurich, this is Monocle on Sunday with Tyler Brule. And good morning from a very sunny but very windy, rather chilly Zurich this morning. But I think it is uh, it's going to uh, improve. I'm very happy to say that Marcus Sugal's here, Rob Cox, you heard at the top of the program. Gillian Tobias is also here uh, as well. Good morning, Gillian. We'll start with you as we do our round table on a Sunday morning. Good morning, Tyler. Well, honestly, um, uh, spending some time in sunny Zurich yesterday was a revelation. It was a little bit like bears coming out of hibernation. There was just this feeling of everyone coming out and wondering. It's summer and life and cafe life and and people talking to each other who never normally talk to each other. It was an amazing feeling of uh, of uh, rebirth in a way. No, it was. And, I will, and as, as Emma was saying as well, we've had uh, Switzerland has been no different than, than the rest of cent- the, the center of Europe. Europe anyway, uh, with just this crazy uh, month of, of rain. Anyway, uh, Marcus Sugal uh, is here as well. We haven't seen you for a while, so it's won- wonderful to have you back. Uh, I hope all is well. You've come out with the sunshine as well. Yes, it's beautiful. So back to life, hopefully. Now, of, of course, uh, regular listeners will know, of course, that you're in the world of, you know, you're, you're on a consumerism beat uh, in the academic world at St. Gallen University. Uh, our class is back. What's happening? Uh, we, we, we've read about remote learning, people returning. Uh, where, where are you now? We finished all the lectures. We did the last two to three. We did them physically when the students would be coming in. And it was funny because I did a survey and said on Zoom, who wants to come in? And then just two or three said, yeah, I'm going to come in. And all of a sudden, I had 25 people in my classroom. So it was very nice. And the lectures went long. It went over 90 minutes. And they stayed. And they discussed. And they wanted to talk. And you really feel how they want to, like a sponge, want to have the social contact. And mm. it's a, They're planning a surprise party next week somewhere in the gardens in Zurich. Um, we're going to have a dinner with our students where we're cooking with them together in the middle of June. So we're trying to really get the community back on um, on campus. 
Very good. We'll be talking about some uh, consumer trends and otherwise in a moment. Uh, Rob Cox, you're here. I mean, it looks like uh, you've not been in the rain because uh, you've been spending a lot of time on the other side of the border, the, the southern border yeah. in, in Italy. Uh, and it's been good to you, it seems. Well, I did the first reporting trip uh, for quite some time. You felt you like know? a cub reporter. Like I that, was like a journalist your, again. A, <laughs> yeah, I went out and, you know, I drove down to uh, southern Italy in uh, Taranto, which is the home to Europe's largest nastiest steel mill and a big question mark when for all sorts of reasons including this giant question of how you transition a business like steel into an era of of of, of reduced carbon emissions it's quite a fascinating technical and technological question but it's also a big social question so to actually get out and about and you know talk to interview people the mayor you know people in the town to do things that i haven't done in you know for a year and plus because of the pandemic was pretty rejuvenating it's great to feel 20 Two again. <laughs> yeah, that true. <laughs> <laughs> but just tell me while we're, because uh, yeah, ge- geographically trying to sort of like really at the the upper end of uh, of the heel. Well, not in the heel, but it's like the, the bottom instep. of where the, the instep is. The it? instep. That's yeah. exactly the word of, of that's and it's Taranto, which is a you know this is a town that was colonized by Spartans you know long ago. It is almost it is you can see how beautiful the be- the, the the sea is just sort of the natural positioning, but it also has this steel mill that was built in 1965. That is tw- that occupies twice the size of the entire city and has been controversial for um, among uh, many reasons, including the fact that it basically poisoned thousands and thousands of people. You have high cancer rates for all of the neighborhoods nearby, and it's just a real question. You know, there is a you know, what do you do with a legacy like this? Um, and it's not resolved, and it will be sort of to my mind, it will be a window into how we in the developed world move from the era of hydrocarbons to one where um, where we're net zero and i think it's uh it's not obvious how a city like that is going to struggle to to get into the future but do you, do you have an idea of how active it is and and how important uh this factory still is to italy incorporated yeah it's viewed in the north in particular as, as a provider of steel and we you know we've just come out of a pandemic where everyone is well, we're still coming out of a pandemic where people are questioning supply chains in particular and so what you have is the largest producer of steel in europe and in, in italy uh it is it's critical or it's viewed as a critical resource for whether it's Fiat Auto or shipbuilding, uh, yeah, shipbuilding uh, um, uh, appliances, all those kinds of things. Um, so it's not just a question for the people of the South or in Taranto, which you know there's like eight to nine thousand people directly employed. No, no small matter in a, in a city of two hundred twenty thousand people. But the question of all of the Italian supply chain and industrial circle. This is the question that's that will be decided by the the Supreme Court in Italy in the next couple of weeks. Actually, because there is an ordinance put forward by. By the mayor of the city to shut the place down or to shut out the integrated steel part of it, which is the nasty bit. Um, so it's a re- it, 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 it may seem like a very local drama, but it is actually, I think, uh, emblematic of the transition that the whole world is going to have to make from an era where it was cheap and easy and nobody thought about the negative externalities of burning you know, carbons, essentially. Yeah, you previewed uh, two stories at the top of the program as well. Maybe we'll be jumping back across the Atlantic to talk about, uh, of course, uh, firearms purchases, uh, background checks, all of those things. Uh, we'll also be probably talking a little bit about uh, vaccination rights as well. Uh, Marcus, maybe if we turn over to you, um, you've uh, you've got the Sontag Zeitung there, and uh, maybe you, I do see you've scribbled down some notes as well. Uh, what uh, what story would you like to start on uh, this morning? What's uh, what's caught your eye? Maybe maybe I pick something that um, that is on the one hand related to pandemic and on the other hand related to me as a as a marketing guy 
when you look at restaurants all around the world, how they're bouncing back. And um, I just picked up, it's merely from the New York Times about Montauk, about the, the, um, 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 the city on, on Long Island, where they're now refurbishing all the restaurants coming from a leisure style and very relaxed style now to a more posh style and saying, we don't want to serve you at the bar with the cocktail and the burger. We want to give you a full meal. And they're getting upscale. That's what I think is something that is very interesting because when you talk to the restaurants owners in Zurich, they're saying, back to the old menu, don't change everything, be kind to the people. And and then you take medicine at 11 medicine, a vegan menu. So that's a little bit haunting me with my likes for, for good food <laughs> and asking myself, where are going to be the innovations in Europe? Where you see new stuff coming up, what's going to change? That's the one thing. And the other thing that, that haunts me is... Uh, the Sonntagszeitung and the NZZ are both reporting on the Generation Z that they're now career-oriented again. And I'm looking at my students and I said, that hasn't been changed in the last 25 years. <laughs> mm -hmm. So this craze always about these generations that are coming up. Now the generation COVID and everything. I don't know if you, we put all people always in one bucket. I don't think it's, it's worthwhile bringing it into the newspaper, but the reality for me is much more diversified. But uh, many people would probably point to a marketing guy like you saying that's your job to put people in buckets because, you know, then we can sell them lip gloss and maybe a smaller car or, right? You're absolutely right. But we don't put them in the bucket of cohorts because cohorts are no segments. Then we segment them probably. And the other newspapers saying segmentation doesn't work. And now, come on, guys, what's true? So for me, it's segmentation still. It's one when my students should be coming out of their their studies, they should know their first segment. They don't segment on age. They segment on life. I mean, you're the best example, Monocle. So well, I mean, <laughs> we, 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 that, that's debatable as well. But well, but just yes. yeah, no, but but just just quickly though, I want to go back to the restaurant store, but maybe just bring everyone in on this. Do you think that this is a reaction saying, okay, we want people to not just sort of you know rock up at the bar as you said, order drink and uh, and have a sandwich, but you know this is about you know three courses and having a fantastic afternoon. Is this, you know, not being cynical, but is this about margins? And is this maybe about, this is a recovery strategy? Or do you think this is also a trend we're seeing now because people have obviously been home, it's a little bit too much takeaway after a year and a half, etc. Uh, is it a combination of the two yeah. or what? What do you think? I think it's a combination of the two and it's another one that they mentioned in the article, it's security, it's distance. If you're sitting at the bar, you're much closer. And when you can sit them on the tables, you can much more control how close they are. And two of the restaurant's owners are saying they're doing this because they don't feel comfortable having the people sitting at the bar and the aerosols running around on the whole bar. So there might be these three components that come together. And, well, a new value proposition always helps. Mm. Well, listen, Rob, you've been back and forth across the, the Atlantic. You're, but your last trip was, what, maybe March. six weeks ago? It was March. Yeah. It's been a while. So you were you were early days. Places were just... Uh, just starting to throw open the doors, but everything we see, we see now. I mean, you only have to look at the streets around here. I mean, tomorrow in Switzerland, it'll be now officially six people can sit at a table outside. I mean, that went out the window ages ago because I mean, there's, yeah. I mean, it's it's a free it's a free for all, and you know, and this is not people breaking the rules. This is just getting back into the groove of of freedom uh, again. So, I'm wondering, do you th do you think we're going to have yeah, a little bit of sort of segmentation of society, 20, 30% of people who are still going to be quite fearful, even though they might be vac vaccinated. And then you're going to have this, you know, the other people just 
can we just get back to, to yeah. where we were? I think you have restaurant hesitant. So, you know, I'm using like vax hesitant. I mean, so you're still going to have a portion of the population that's not getting not out there. Right now, what you see are incentives, particularly in places like the U.S. and the U.K. to get people who are vax hesitant. We're still not there in Europe. We're still people who want the vaccines are still lining up and, and jonesing for them. Um, but you are going to get to that point where there's going to be that 20 percent, say, the population. And then there's the 20, maybe 30 percent that, as you say, are, are just afraid to go out. They're just thinking, eh, you know, I don't. And you say to them, well, you don't have to sit at the bar. You're not going to sit there, you know, aerosoling somebody else's <laughs> breath. You're going to sit and, you know, and at the same time, yeah, they're going to charge you a bit more. And maybe, so I think there is some margin to it, of course. I mean, they've got a lot to make up for. It's been six to nine months, depending on where you are, in which you have not been able to have a, even close to a, a full capacity. So seems like a re- relatively smart way from a marketing perspective, get people back in the seats and to get a little bit more margin out of them. And just quickly, what's what's the view from Italia been? Uh, well, whether we're down in Toronto or, or in, in Rome, uh, how's uh, how's Italy bouncing back? It's roaring back. Um, so you, you've already seen it from GDP numbers and people are out. You They could not get back out, in, out into restaurants, out into bars soon enough. You still can't eat inside yet. So I know that that Switzerland's moving quicker to that. And of course, New York, New York in the U.S. is well beyond that. But um, yeah, it's it's roaring back and people are just so happy to be just like anywhere. Look, they just want to get out. Like you saw in the U.K., as soon as they opened outdoor pubs, it could have been raining cats and dogs <laughs> and people wouldn't have been out there. Well, Jillian, Jillian you, were, you were living it before you came back here two weeks ago because it was just, you, yeah, you came back just at a time when they had, uh, well, they were throwing open restaurant interiors. Yeah. Well, I just think what, what's interesting is is that return to formality is a sense of occasion yeah. because I think we all took eating out in restaurants just so for granted. It was what we always did. And suddenly now when it was removed from us, we realize how important that is. We want a little bit of formality maybe and a theater and a respectful waiter and take our time over a meal because you know what? We haven't done this for a long time. Let's really enjoy it. So I think there's a bit of that. And Rob, let's uh, let's uh, maybe go back to the, well, maybe we should stay in, in Europe for a moment you were just talking a little bit uh, of course about the vaccination right it's it was it was very it's been very sluggish in many countries switzerland included you know now i mean it's yeah we've got people in the office who are in their 20s and we don't have any teenagers working here i don't think so anyway um but uh, it, it's really been thrown open you know to anyone pretty much over 16 not not every canton but i mean if you look at geneva if you look at lucerne etc um it's, it's pretty much open to everyone and it's kind of it, it's now sort of just boom it's it's happening incredibly fast as you were citing at the top of the show yeah i mean and this was it's just this it it, it snowballs right so it goes from there was that you know, it was two or three months behind, say, the U.S. Which, or the U.K., and certainly what quite a bit behind Israel. Um, and and it was it was kind kind of worrying to me early, let's say around Easter, when there were there were headlines about how they were millions of vaccines showing up and people were closed because they thought, well, no one wants to get vaccinated over the Easter. Yeah, Easter Easter Sunday, Easter Monday. Uh, yeah, let's not vaccinate people. Right. That that and so you so I was quite concerned about the pace. Now you see, I, I think the and uh, the the Sandus. Zeitung is saying that they've got 80,000 a day on a per population basis. That's one of the highest paces out there in the world. And and it's just sort of, it's part of it's like stigma's gone. No one's like, there's no issue. You know, no one feels like they're getting in front of the older people. Like there was, there's a fair amount of that. I've talked to a lot of people who are like, well, I'll wait my turn. I'll wait my turn. But then it's like, hey, just get out and do it. And people are doing it. And that's not just 
that's not just here. I mean, you see that ar- around Europe, and I think that's that's good. Now, obviously, we have there are worrying strains out mm. there. I mean, I, you just saw that the uh, Swiss put a a warning label on people coming from the UK because of the yeah. Indian variant. Um, so we're sti- we are so far from out of the woods, but it's a good sign. Mm. Well, because if you look at the um, this the state of um, yeah, I mean whether it's the retail sector, whether it's the travel sector, etc. Do you have any sort of indication when you're speaking to to partners, probably other visiting lecturers, how how they're looking at this and the pace of real true consumer recovery? That whether I go to I mean, we know the grocery stores have done well. But if I'm in other parts of the retail trade, if I am if I'm in the travel sector, we see some airlines saying, look at, you know, it's not going to be till 24, 25 uh, that we get close to anything looking like this. But at the same time, uh, you know, you, you talk to other people and they said that, you know, they're, they're laying new aircraft on, you know, every day. Um, and so I'm wondering, are you are you more positive that we're not looking at 36 months? Maybe we're looking at half of that? Uh, well, I'm business administration and not economics, so my glass bowl is very small. <laughs> but but maybe what 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 I'm seeing is a lot of ambiguity. You see it going well with one company, you go see it go well with some country, you see it go well with one segment. There's not the one size fits all prognostic prognostic that I can deliver. But what what strikes me most right now, and I'm discussing with most of my my partners in the companies, is how we're going to get back to work. In marketing and sales and we just had a conference two two weeks ago on the topic of how does sales return out of that pandemic and i had companies running from b2b to b2c they were all saying the sales guys were the last one that were reluctant to work they knew that their customers were gone they were into everything so they've got this remote sales approach and all that stuff and um the question is when you look at the newspapers on this weekend again okay zontag saying is saying um you need to get to work back to work because otherwise your job will be gone and said I'm Sonntag is saying <laughs> stay at home it's better and nobody gets that idea that both is gonna work so so we're gonna have so many mixed structures even with consumers now we're gonna have a craze with retail with the next maybe until Christmas but then we will go back and say oh my god it's so full in the city let's go back to the remote stuff Digitech Galaxus e-commerce in Switzerland 22% up in the last year uh, they just won an advertising award from the ADC here in Switzerland for a creative spot, a retailer that is e-commerce doing a creative spot and winning a prize. So there's really something changing. Mm. Uh, maybe just a, a quick um, spin around the table. Gillian, I'll start with you. Maybe going back to a little bit of wh- you know, where we are today, if sort of 70 Sixty percent. Let's just pick a number of people who sort of feel comfortable. And of course, of course, as, as Rob was saying as well, you're going to have you know these others who are a little bit sort of you know skeptical about being indoors. You know, in the same way, do you think that's going to ramp down quite quickly, or or is this is this going to stick with us for for a while that people are going to go into a space and go, oh, this feels a bit crowded. I'm not I'm not so comfortable here. Um, or, well, I'm su- I'm surprised because I I especially with some of the younger people mostly with the younger ones, I'm surprised how much resistance there is and how much fear there is. About the workplace, you mean? Workplace, retail going out, which just, I just surprise it, given that usually it's the young generation who are, you know, less risk averse. And I'm I'm surprised. I think it, it, it might take a little pushing to get them in there. But then when you go, I'm more used to a newsroom culture with mm. open plan offices. I just can't imagine not going back to the office as soon as you're allowed to. Like there are just so many benefits to it. So I, I just, 
I, I'm really curious and I'm puzzled why there is so much resistance with younger people. Mm. Let's ask the cub reporter. Um, <laughs> do, do you do you do you see the newsroom coming back? Because you know one of the stories you know, that we've been looking at over the last year and a half. It's like you know newspapers in the states, elsewhere in the world. You know, there, of course, there, there's the savings and all of these things uh, that come without having this football. Uh, pitch size uh, room uh, with with desks, uh, you know, almost on top of each other. But then we've sort of seen that also there's a reason why news the newsroom approach is, has of course been co opted by all kinds of businesses because it's collaborative and it's fast. Yeah. So so uh, yeah. Do do you have a sense, uh, you know, that this idea that all of these desks that we see, uh, you know, being piled up uh, in parking lots uh, for sale, that maybe uh, we should be buying them actually, and we can reselling them back. So. Well, I can just speak for my crew is yearning to get back to to be in a in a sort of a collaborative environment. No, not not to say that we can't do it on Microsoft Teams and all that, but there is just something about leaning over and saying, what do you think about this? Okay, at a respectful distance, let's say. But but we so my crew in London is already starting to kind of, particularly the younger folks, actually, the, the ones who really need the training, who aren't yet in a position where they can just, you know, close their eyes and do the job the way that, uh, you know, a more experienced journalist or columnist can do it. They like to be together. So we're starting to create the, that cluster. I'll be in New York in two weeks. We're going to have a crew, our whole crew in New York get together for the first time. I work, I went through the workday process. I don't know if you've ever had to do that, but, you know, this thing where I had to, someone wanted to come back to the office in New York. I had to go through and sort of change their their status, which I didn't know I, there was a change, but it's kind of strange right. thing. But so all of this is happening because people are wanting to get. Now, are they going to be there every day, five days a week at Canary Wharf or in, in, in uh, Times Square? Probably not. But there will always be a sort of rotating uh, group, and I think that will really foster collaboration, idea sharing, creativity, original, all those things that are, I think are really key to what we do. And, but it's interesting, when you talk to a lot of, of managers as well, and I'm wondering, is one of the winners out of this going to be the entry control companies, uh, the ones who know who is coming in and out of Canary Wharf, et cetera? Because a lot of people you know, that, that I've spoken to say, look, when it comes you know, time for reviews this year, it's, it's the people, not just that they showed up, but who really muscled in in the last year and a half. And and part of it is also being present. And, and I'm wondering, Marcus, do you think that there is going to be this recognition and, and understanding that also showing up is going to be important? You can't just show up on screen. You can do great work, but something usually magical happens when you come into a room. I think one thing that, that you need to take out of that pandemic from my point of view is, and this is what you already discussed, is it's the differentiation between cooperation and collaboration. What you can do perfectly at home is doing, and, and this is where remote work was born, with textile producers in St. Gallen, the St. Gallen Spitze, they did it home, and they did it on the frequency. They did it piece by piece by piece, so they were very efficient. So that's the way that you can work at home. You can tackle down everything. You can write your article if you've got your structures. Everything you can do that's efficient, you do it from, from home. And when you need to collaborate, you need to sit together. But getting people back to be really motivated to do that with the younger ones, yes. Me, I was getting on the train last week to do my lectures. I was like, oh my God, I'm the only one in the train. Did I miss something? And, and you, feel, you feel insecure with the routines that you had before. And most of the meetings that we're doing amongst, um, amongst the lecturers is we're doing this still on Teams. It's funny. So we still don't feel so very well mm. in doing that traveling. Gillian, uh, you're a filmmaker. Uh, what is this meant in terms of 
the interaction that you have with clients because there's something solitary about being a filmmaker. Yes, you need to have, of course, your director of photography and you have your sound engineer and, and maybe there's some additional support when you're doing documentary work. But then, of course, there's oftentimes, if it's a commercial job, there's a big client behind it uh, as well. Has that been difficult for you, maybe not having... Yeah, you know, sometimes you need to sit down with a team yeah. of people to to go through it, uh, to, of course, look at a rough cut. And again, I mean, as we're all saying, yes, this can all be shared on screen, but there's there's something about reading body language, isn't there? Totally. I think it's a trust thing as well. And I don't know what it is about that screen, but you just can't communicate that level of trust by talking to someone, by talking to a collaborator, someone you're going to interview. You know, there there is nervousness. We, we forget as journalists, but people are nervous about being recorded and their words and their thoughts being recorded. And so you need, there's this sort of massaging of getting someone to feel comfortable enough to do that. You can't do that on a digital screen, I don't think. And so it's everything from making them feel comfortable for what they have to do, but also bigger that they're going to trust you to communicate and piece together uh, their story in a way that they feel comfortable with. And I, I think that can only happen when you're sitting down, spending time with them, getting to know them and having conversations and finding out things you didn't know about them, which I just don't think happens in that square rectangular box. It, Marcus, you picked up on, on an interesting point, but maybe Rob, I, I want to ask you though, Marcus, you were saying you know, all of the students sort of came back to class and they, they were they were there for maybe an extended lecture. Do you think that people have lost track of time? Because I find that when you, I, I was in Milan a few weeks ago and when you go in for meetings today, because people are sort of used to being on a screen, et cetera, but suddenly they're face to face. It's like, hey, you know, I've got another meeting to get to, but people can just talk forever. Because if, you know, I was, you know, visiting a couple of companies, we were the first, you know, we were the first business to, you know, to go through the doors of, of Prada, for example, in a year. Uh, and, and then the meeting just sort of runs and runs. But, you know, you've got to get to the next one. Well, I, I think this is the great thing about getting out and about and be doing the, the kind of work we do, whether it's talking to people, whether it's being a reporter, which is talking to people, right? People have time. Uh, so CEOs or just subjects of interest for us are available. They're quite willing to meet uh, for the most part. I mean, they're they're kind of yearning. They're like, oh, okay, I can have a meeting. You mean breakfast? Wow. <laughs> and it's true. I was in a meeting in Rome the other day with the CEO of a very uh, relatively large company. Um, and it, you know, I, a breakfast usually goes, what, 45 minutes in my sort of New York. St this thing was an hour and a half before I was there out the go. door, yeah. you know, multiple espressos. Of course, it was Italian breakfast. There's no real food. There's just a little, <laughs> a little bite of some crostata or something. But, um, but you know, so I was all charged up on coffee. We had this amazing conversation. And, and it, to your point, like, wow, it's a good thing I didn't have a meeting scheduled for an hour and 15 minutes after the uh, after that one, because otherwise I'd have been late. Yeah, no, I was going to say, I think as people sort of reemerge into the world, they're going to uh, maybe have, maybe realize that they're not going to be so efficient right away because, you know, what you, where you could have squeezed seven meetings into a day, it's only going to be three uh, or so probably moving, moving. But they're high quality. Well, this is true, of course. You know, ho hopefully, hopefully it lands the deal. Uh, we are going to be heading to Athens uh, in a moment, also to Bangkok. Uh, it's just coming up to uh, 31 past uh, the hour, uh, wherever you are in the world pretty much, unless you're on one of those funny time zones. Uh, Emma Nelson, though, is back in London with the news headlines. Thank you very much indeed, Tyler. France's President Emmanuel Macron has warned that his country could pull its troops out of Mali if it moves towards radical Islam. His comments follow the second coup in nine months. France has around 5,000 troops in the region. In Brazil, thousands of people have gathered to protest against the handling of the COVID-19 crisis by the government of President Jair Bolsonaro. Mr Bolsonaro's popularity has plummeted over his response to the pandemic. And while 
travelling to a growing number of spots of the world is off the menu here in the United Kingdom. A journey to a remote and uninhabited Scottish island is allowed for the successful applicant to be its resident caretaker. Isle Martin has no full-time residents, but needs someone to keep the island in shape for visitors. Only solo applicants need to apply to look after two beaches and a micro-museum in a hut. And those are the headlines. Back to you in Zurich, Tyler. Emma, is there any light, lighthouse maintenance as well you, on this particular aisle? I haven't answered that. I didn't realise that that was a thing of interest, but I can always find out for you, Tyler, and let you know. Is, 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 this, is this something that particularly perks your, perks your attention? Uh, absolutely not. I've, 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 I've been an island owner already. The, the thought of you know, being on an island all by yourself, uh, especially you know, after decades of Nordic noir thrillers, not very interesting. You know, there, there, there's always someone le- lurking behind the birch trees with an axe. Not even for a micro museum in a hut. <laughs> no, no, no. Wow, there, there, there's, a, there's a selling point. Uh, Emma, just, just while we have you, uh, yes. v- very quickly, you were probably uh, listening in a co- on a couple of those points. Uh, I mean, you, uh, as I said, Gillian's been here for two weeks. She's heading back to London tomorrow. Uh, your your sort of take on the uh, the catering trade in London. What, what are you seeing right now? It's moving. It's moving fast, and it's moving in absolutely the right direction. Um, what is really reassuring is that as we move to to more sunshine, um, I mean, the the great irony was that as soon as we could eat inside, uh, the sun came out. Um, so everybody went back outside again. But what's been very nice is a feeling of local hospitality has really been been absolutely thriving. We went for lunch at a a tiny little Italian restaurant yesterday and they were and we spoke to the owners for about half an hour and he said it's really really picked up people are still doing the takeaways so that so that side of the business has grown but they're seeing the the locals the normal customers coming back so grateful to come back in again and they're spending more because they're they're remembering the starter that they enjoyed 18 years 18 years it feels 18 <laughs> months ago <laughs> and and everybody's just spending and going back so yes things are really moving fast and it's 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 wonderful to see Emma, you mentioned uh, Sunny, which is a good cue uh, to make our way to Athens uh, right now. We're uh, joined on the line uh, by Zenia Kunalaki. She's the foreign editor at uh, Greece's newspaper of record, or we should probably say one of uh, Greece's newspapers of record, uh, the Katamarini, uh, and uh, is joining us on the line from Athens this morning. Good morning. Good morning, Tyler. How are you? Uh, very well, thanks. Uh, I hope all is all is well in Athens. I'm I'm very much hoping to make my way there in in, in a couple of weeks. So I wanted yeah. to start uh, if we picked up the the paper this morning. Uh, what uh, what's on what's on the front page? Uh, what's what's really the lead story in Greece today? Well, we have uh, the Turkish Foreign Minister Mevlet Tsavusoglu, uh, who just arrived in Greece. Uh, he's uh, heading to Thrace. Uh, to visit his fellow compatriots there, uh, fellow Muslims actually. And uh, this visit is causing a lot of stress because usually, you know, Turkish uh, politicians can cause frictions by just calling their Muslims, uh, the, the Muslim minority, Turkish minority, which is against the Lausanne Treaty and is considered immediately a provocation by Athens. So he's supposed to meet... Um, uh, our prime minister and our foreign minister tomorrow morning. So we're anxiously awaiting what he's going to say, if he is going to cause any problems with that. And uh, I hope uh, all goes smoothly and we don't have any problems with his visit. Uh, the problem is that he has brought with him uh, almost 100 uh, journalists from Turkey. And this uh, sounds uh, very uh, suspicious, I would say, as a publicity stand for the for the Turkish audience, 
So maybe he's trying to to play the nationalistic card or the uh, religious card, you know, so in order to boost the uh, popularity of Erdogan and the AKP party, which is sliding in polls uh, in the recent weeks. Uh, the Turkish lira is also sliding, as you probably know. Uh, the relations, tur- uh, Turkish-American relations are also going bust. So I think uh, it might be uh, an attempt, you know, to boost uh, his chances in the Turkish audience and not so much... Uh, to mend fences with the Greek authorities. Mm. I mean, then you look at you look after the foreign desk uh, at the Katamarini uh, newspaper. Yeah. So, what what would be the the three main topics uh, when you when you look at uh, relations uh, with Ankara between Athens? Uh, what what are the, the the three main themes that are normally bubbling up in terms of obviously there there's of course ongoing border issues of certain yeah. certain islands etc. Yeah. Uh, obviously yeah. there's the 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 expedition uh, story of of last year of course in terms of mineral issues. But but what's key to you? Yeah, uh, the three you mentioned, and I would also uh, say the immigration problem because you know. Uh, Turkey has this deal with the EU and it's always uh, trying to uh, exploit, you know, the uh, refugee uh, crisis in order to create, you know, problems with uh, Greece, uh, the infamously uh, called pushbacks, uh, which uh, we are uh, obliged to do and they are, uh, you know, uh, pretending to tackle in a humanistic way, which is not true, actually, because they uh, they actually put pressure on Greece and, of course, Europe as a whole uh, by threatening to open the, the gates, you know, and let immigrants flood into uh, Europe and of course uh, they they use Greece as a getaway and a gateway and then they uh, just want to go to Germany and other Western European countries, uh, which is not uh, obviously the aim of uh, Western European countries. So they're trying, you know, to to close the doors with Turkey by uh, giving them money and putting and trying to put the refugees, you know, there up in uh, uh, refugee camps and uh, to to let them stay in Turkey. Mm. Let's let's maybe change our focus right now to quite a, a significant business story uh, in the world of mergers and acquisitions. Uh, quite quite a big deal uh, with with Mondelez uh, from from the U.S. Uh, and uh, and the, the the purchase of a of a domestic brand. Yes, uh, that was a very interesting story. Spiros Averopoulos of Chipita, a self-made uh, Greek entrepreneur, managed to uh, sell his company, uh, Chipita, as uh, I mentioned, uh, to American food giant Mondelez for 2 billion euros. Uh, it's a very interesting story. We ran a profile of him in the newspaper. He inherited a very small company from his father and turned it into one of the most successful companies of Greece uh, with a presence, I think, in 50 countries, which is uh, rather huge, you know, for Greek standards. Uh, so, uh, yes, it's a big uh, success story. And I think because we we tend to discuss with you the uh, criteria with which uh, we choose, you know, our stories. I think we're we're trying, you know, to choose after some 
almost 15 gloomy days for uh, gloomy years for uh, Greece. Uh, some success stories, some optimistic aspects, you know, of uh, uh, economic or social life in Greece. Uh, so I think this is a positive profile we chose to uh, print on our paper today. And just tell us uh, for for any of our listeners who want to uh, to to uh, run out to the grocery store after uh, we're we're on air. What what, what does this company make? Uh, because it's it's not quite a household name to me. Chips, croissants, uh, cookies, very good ones, very tasty ones. So yeah, very Chipita, good. It's called. Okay, um, hmm. just. Uh, when I was in Athens last time, uh, there was a lot of discussion about uh, trips to uh, various uh, islands. I was speaking to uh, to some uh, people surrounding uh, the the prime minister uh, about the revival of craft, uh, and uh, and uh, and and one one part of this was uh, the world of weaving. Um, a lot of monasteries uh, still making incredible fabrics. And actually, when I was in uh, when I was in Athens, uh, there was a whole crew from uh, from Dior uh, who were there, and there was. Some murmurs at the time that there was going to be some event at the Acropolis. This uh, yeah. seems to be underway. Yeah, uh, the, there was an agreement on that, you know, because our archaeologists are very strict on that. So they, to whom they give the Acropolis, uh, under which conditions, you know, so that the marbles don't get ma- damaged. Uh, so they put, they set up uh, several uh, strict uh, uh, preconditions for that. Uh, so the deal was closed, but uh, there's a huge outcry but by some, uh, you know, opposition uh, voices, because they think that uh, the, the Acropolis shouldn't be given like to fashion houses or uh, movie as movie sets. Uh, they think that, that the ancient uh, heritage is being trivialized, you know, they have such arguments. So there's a big debate on that. Uh, personally, I'm in favor. <laughs> I think it's a good promotion of Greece, you know, to to uh, feature the Acropolis in uh, commercials or uh, big fashion houses. Uh, I think it's a good thing. Uh, I'm not against it. And also, I'm I'm against you know this sacred uh, uh, like attitude uh, towards the ancient heritage. I don't like that. I think it should be uh, uh, a part of our everyday life. I think I would only be concerned if it's a, a Dior fashion show that uh, it might mean that uh, that Monsieur Arnaud yeah, from LVMH might want to buy the Acropolis. You never know. <laughs> I don't think it's for sale. It's up for sale. No, no, no. Other things Thank have God. been other things have been uh, for sale in Greece. And finally, just before yeah. we we go, uh, you had uh, an interesting entrepreneurship story about uh, the laying of uh, of some cables, and uh, and this is obviously yeah. a tech story as well, and uh, and the women behind it. Yeah, uh, two uh, marvelous women, uh, engineers, uh, very successful engineers. They both studied in Greece, which is also very interesting. And they they are behind the, a mega project uh, which connects the mainland with Crete. So it's uh, uh, the length of the cables is uh, underwater cables is uh, I think 179 kilometers. So it's a I think it's the longest actually uh, wiring in the world. 
uh, under, underwater, I mean. So uh, we run this also, you know, uh, because we, we're ranking very low in terms of uh, sex equality. So it's a good thing, you know, to have women take uh, leading positions and being behind such big project, projects. And I would imagine, obviously, these laying of cables has something to do with, uh, of, of course, with uh, connectivity and, uh, and, yeah. and, and, and of course, uh, internet speeds as well. So this, this obviously yeah. must have something to do with uh, people wanting to have a place in the sun, uh, but also being connected to the world <laughs> sure. as well. Sure. <laughs> uh, Kanlaki, uh from the Katamarini newspaper, a foreign editor there. Thanks very much for that. Uh, just we're going to head to uh, to uh, to Bangkok in a moment. But uh, Rob, I wanted to start with you. Uh, do you think we're going to see this you know, this big move? So, I mean, I, I think it sounds quite attractive, actually, you know, laying 180k of cables, you know, under the med to if, if things are going to be uh, faster and I can be in a nice whitewashed house. Uh, you know, I don't want to be a- alone on a northern Scottish island. I would rather probably be in on Crete. Uh, but is, are we going to see this type of race or was this another one of these sort of knee-jerk things oh everyone you know is going to be living out in montauk and everyone is going to be everywhere else or yeah i mean the the city also as we've seen the cities haven't gone away these last 18 months no no no, they haven't but but i think there is going to be this there's there are two things that are happening one is just this desire for more infrastructure and money that's out there to stimulate the infrastructure. You're seeing that everywhere. You see it in the U.S., you see it in Europe, you see it uh, part of the recovery fund that's coming out of uh, Brussels for sure. And then you sort of think, well, what is it going to do? How will it usefully create more productivity? It seems to me reasonable to say, well, broadband or or transport or things like that, that that are actually going to help with essentially a dispersion of people and 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 jobs that I don't think that I think that is partly here to stay even if it means we're still going in two or three times a week into the office we're still two or three times a week that means we're working from home so I think all of that is is coherent with with the sort of post-pandemic view of the world I would agree and maybe the Vitra guys are always saying it's a little bit of home in the office and a little bit of office in the home and it's going to be the combination if you look at Singapore they already started out before the pandemic getting people out of the business district to work more dispersed so we will see other co-working spaces not in the cities we will see meeting places that are getting crazy and all that stuff and I'm looking forward to that and I think that's a great chance. Uh, I'm going to do just a quick uh, poll uh, before we head to, to, to Bangkok. Uh, so, Gillian, uh, maybe it's not Crete. If you could have a little bolt hole somewhere else, and you can't say Paris because that's a big city, <laughs> so that doesn't count. So park your roof terrace for a moment. Uh, wh- where would you go? Uh, warm. Well, if I can't say Paris, can I go? You can stay in France. That's fine. Okay. All right. <laughs> then maybe Marseille. Okay. And the island. Well, Okay. It depends how bold holy. I mean, Pocquerel, if we're really talking remote around there. Southern France. I think France we're going to stick to. Not a city, so I won't do Marseille. Okay. Too much like Paris. So Somewhere along the coast. Pocquerel, somewhere okay. along the coast. Rob, I mean, you, I mean, you've already sort of, I mean, again, now you, you can't choose Rome, even though that's uh, where you're heading uh, mostly these days. But if, well, I mean, you, the whole world, you don't have to stick to Italy. Where, where would you have your little retreat, uh, but still being connected to the world? Uh, it might be somewhere like in a, uh, the coast of Maine, someplace like that in the States where may, I don't know about an island. You sort of, you, you, you got me thinking about, yeah, Danish noir thrillers Stephen and things King like that. Well. Yeah, uh, yeah, Stephen, Stephen King. Yeah. Not quite, but, but someplace like that where in, you know, where there's, there's, there's the ocean uh, when it's warm and then there's mountains and, and lakes and things like that inland, uh, something like that would work. Marcus, over to you. Definitely um, south to Italy, just behind the Swiss border, somewhere down two to three hours from here. 
Right, and so you can always break for the border back north if you need to. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> but very sensibly and, and Swiss as, as an approach. Uh, it's just gone uh, 10.46 uh, here in Zurich. We're heading to Bangkok now. Uh, our correspondent, uh, Gwen Robinson, uh, is there. Sawadika, Gwen. Oh, Sawadika, Kuntaila. <laughs> Gwen, uh, maybe before we, uh, we we get into the the main topics of the day, uh, just tell us what if 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 you're living uh, in uh, in the Thai capital, uh, where where have the Thais mm. been going over the last year and a half? Because and and we have a lot to get through in terms of of how things have changed since we last spoke to you. But are they are they up north? Uh, are they in Phuket? Are they down in Hua Hin? Uh, have you have you seen also this this flight from the city as well uh, with with certainly Bangkok's you know upper middle upper classes right well you know if you had a couple of hours i'd I'd fill you in fully but uh (laughs) suffice to say that thailand is now having the weirdest i think hybrid lockdown of probably most countries i mean a lot of people are taking advantage of i think i've mentioned before that's a bonanza like you've never seen on tourism um you know luxury resorts going for a song and you know a captive really you know borders not quite as closed as Australia, but uh, pretty well very few tourists coming in. So it's a kind of wonderland of travel. However, given this um, incredible explosion of COVID, that is all relative for Thailand, that is. Um, it's really kind of led to uh, uh, some uh, restrictions that are very bizarre. So, for example, you can go to a shopping mall. All shopping malls are open. However, they've closed all public parks, swimming pools. Um, you can go and play golf, but you can't go and jog in a, in a, a, a public jogging area. So um, you can go to a hairdresser, but you can't have your hair dyed. You know, there's myriad, and I think the ties have made it more and more complicated. A lot of people are really confused what you can and can't do. You couldn't even eat in a restaurant. You could only get takeaway. But recent easing means that restaurants can now have 25% of their usual uh, custom dining in, but they cannot serve alcohol. But you can go and buy alcohol in a convenience store. So it gives you the picture. And I think really the people who can afford it and have the time are taking advantage of uh, there's a lot of people moving around traveling, but that is not bolstering the moribund tourism industry, I'm afraid. A lot of businesses are going to the wall and we'll probably see more in coming months. Gwen, at the top of the show, you teased us uh, with uh, a royal aspect uh, to to all of this as well, a bit of a royal uh, intervention oh. with uh, with uh, mm. Princess uh, Chilipon. Yes, well, so uh, what we've had uh, is an extraordinary um, delay in... Uh, attention to this uh, COVID situation. And I think for most of last year, Thailand felt pretty pretty good. You know, they were a COVID star. Uh, we only had like a little more than 4,000 deaths. Uh, for, I mean, sorry, 4,000 cases and less than 60 deaths for most of the year. So I think the vaccine situation was not really attended to except to say that the, the king himself, uh, who took over a company uh, of biopharma company made a deal with uh, AstraZeneca to produce uh, Thailand's very own vaccine, which would be an AstraZeneca, but produced by the Thais in a venture with AstraZeneca. So everyone was very proud of that. First time Thailand has ever done something like that. And of course, it was going to be seen as a great royal initiative. 
In fact, uh, that has gone slightly south or off the rails, um, and it hasn't gone as smoothly as uh, as I think expected. And meanwhile, this uh, third wave of COVID, which exploded, I think, around end of end of the year, and that has freaked people out. And frankly, uh, the vaccine situation is slightly fraught, with less than two percent of the population vaccinated, and Thailand scrambling around for um, you know for alternatives. And of course, China has come to the rescue. So there is a lot of Sinovac, um, the Chinese-made vaccine, heading Thailand's way, but the rollout has been very slow, and that in turn has created a lot of dissatisfaction. And lo and behold, just in recent days, we've just heard that the king's youngest sister, Princess Chilipon, through her foundation, has overridden all the government uh, restrictions on importation or vaccine control. And um, and, uh, her foundation has announced that uh, they will be importing uh, vaccines of uh, whatever description. So um, this is raised a lot of eyebrows, actually, about the extent of powers of, of the royals, the involvement of the, of the king's sister, etc. I can't really say too much um, for obvious reasons, which is that there's a lot of people that get put in jail for criticising the royals. But um, just to say it's an extremely interesting and slightly opaque situation here. So, Gwen, what does this mean when you think of, or when you when you're standing back from this and you're looking at two percent of the population has been vaccinated, mm. and then you think mm. about the tourism industry, and uh, you know, of course, where yeah, you'll have a situation where you know, 70, 80 percent by the end of the summer, pretty much anyone who wants to be vaccinated at any of the key markets uh, that, of course, want to go to to Thailand, uh, and if they don't get their numbers in order, what is the discussion around the tourism industry right now? Well, that's exactly the point, uh, Tyler, and it's a it's a very very critical question for Thailand. I mean, this country was getting 40 million tourists a year uh, before COVID struck, and it's a little. It's, I think I think the number is probably about one percent or less of that uh, this year. And um, what they're struggling to do is come up with some kind of sensible policy. But again, you know, tied themselves into knots. There's been various attempts to start um, various programs where travellers could perhaps fly straight into Phuket and there was a big dream to turn the island of Phuket, which is quite a big resort island, I think most people have heard of it, uh, into a kind of fortress where everybody would be vaccinated. You could fly in internationally, do quarantine for 14 days there in some luxury resort and then uh, move around. All those plans, one after another, have been shot down. And the recent, uh, the recent wave, I think, has, has put pay to a lot of the schemes. But there are still um, a lot of debates going on about how to reopen, uh, even in this environment. And in fact, it does seem like people are getting in. Um, but again, you know, lots of changes in policies. Uh, you could get in with just seven-day quarantine if you had been vaccinated about uh, six weeks ago or two months ago, and now they've changed that. So even if you have been vaccinated as a foreigner, you can't. You have to do your 14-day quarantine. Um, and now the tourism authority is talking about a, a new sort of plan to facilitate uh, uh, tourism again in July. But uh, again, naysayers are saying, look at this situation. So it's about as clear as mud, I'm afraid. Uh, And meanwhile, as 
you point out, it's critical to the economy. We're talking about 20% of GDP at least, I think, and a lot of probably way beyond that in terms of jobs dependent on on the tourism um, uh, tourism industry. And uh, it's just not happening. And I think a lot of businesses will probably have to close. They've been hanging on now for pretty well since uh, March last year. Um, So there is a a very feeling of great anxiety here. And it it is heartbreaking to see these, you know, fabulous resorts uh, standing empty, people being laid off. Um, You know, they estimate 7 million jobs uh, could be more. So, uh, you know, God knows what. But I can tell you there are just unbelievable bargains going here. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, if you're in a domestic context, uh, it must be, um, yeah, that, that must be rather, rather useful, but um, also rather tragic at the same time when you look at the numbers. Gwen Robinson, our correspondent uh, in Bangkok, thank you very much uh, for that. Marcus, I just want to come to you. I mean, when you look at this the, this reset that has to happen uh, in, in, the, in the tourism uh, sector, for, you know, with your marketing hat on, and it's a hat that you are wearing most of the time, I, I, would, uh, I would imagine. Uh, do, do you think we're also going to see this big surge uh, in spend? Is this also going to be you know good for for advertisers uh and and the market in in, in general right now uh, as well or do we not need it i mean as soon as they open up flights if, if you if you're able to fly down to bari brindisi if you're able to get uh, you know a good deal to miami uh it, in a way there won't we won't need a marketing spend people are just ready to go how do you see it uh it's funny because just switzerland tourism just did a new tv commercial with robert de niro and roger federer which was a blast here in switzerland everybody was so proud that robert Robert De Niro was saying Switzerland is boring and this is what you need right now. Um, I don't know. But um, the point that I would like to make is you will see a lot of surge into tourism travel in the next months. It it will happen. But if you want to steer people, if you want to make a difference, you need to find new arguments, I think. Uh, For instance, a friend of mine is just moving to Amsterdam and he's hoping that tourism is never going to bounce back in in Amsterdam because for the reason is it's so you see Venice is trying to keep out the big ships. So I think there are going to be some major changes in how cities and how countries are positioning themselves. And I think the low price idea will still survive, but you will never get that. I'm I'm a German, you know, so low price is always hunting any kind of German (laughs) interest. But the idea of British as well, I'm sorry. But I think you will see a little bit of repositioning. You will see a lot of tourism that is going premium. You saw that in the last months. Travel agencies that are in the upper, upper five, seven star class, they exploded with what they were selling. So I think we're going to see it more differentiated. We will see it starting it out in the regional part and then going more international. And it will take over time until Singapore is open up and um, Thailand is really opening up and you feel secure going on a plane. It will take a while. Gillian, do you think it's wishful thinking? We're just you know, mentioning Venice, for example. It's fine to say, okay, we don't want tourists, but is, you know, this is it's it's a, something of the moment. Uh, or would you like to see a, a reconsideration of, of how the city is? Well, you were just in Venice. I think what was nice now, and I find being in Switzerland and you in Venice, that what was nice is that there were Italian tourists in Venice. There are seem to be Swiss tourists in Switzerland. And I feel this is a lovely honeymoon period. But I do feel for all the restaurants and the hotels and the shops because they do need that. Rob, quickly, uh, Rome. It's uh, it's it, fascinating to see cities like Venice, Rome, without uh, without the wheelie bags of thousands <laughs> of tourists them. and hearing them. I think that's all. I mean, there's part of me that wishes 
it would all stay that way, that, you know, I have a sort of wistful view about <laughs> the pandemic. Of course, it was terrible. It was tragic. Um, but hopefully people like rethink the idea of tourism as a result of that. Very good. Rob Cox, Jillian Tobias, Marcus Schugel, Emma Nelson also. Thank you very much for joining us. Also, Zenia Kunalaki in Athens and Gwen Robinson in Bangkok. Our producers today were Emma Nelson and Marcus Hippie, our studio manager, Desiree Benley uh, here in Zurich and Nora Hall in London. I'm Tyler Berlay. Monocle on Sunday returns next, next week with a very special edition. We'll see you then. Bye-bye.